This episode is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen. And Bubs provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witnessed personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi. And his friends, Sean and TJ, founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the 
products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Army helicopter pilot veteran, wildland firefighter and member of the Heli Gunner team, Whitney Lindsay. Now, as you will hear, Whitney held herself to a very high standard, but when the safety of her crew was threatened by the actions of one of her fellow pilots, her appeals were not only ignored, but it began a witch hunt focused on herself. And I think this parallels many of the experiences that we have had wearing a uniform with certain individuals. Now, this is not saying the entire organization is like this, but all it takes is one or two people in the wrong positions to abuse their power and threaten not only people's careers, but also their mental health. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating that you leave elevates this podcast, therefore making it more visible and easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Whitney Lindsay. Enjoy. Well, Whitney, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here. And I also want to say thank you to Matt Crane for connecting us. This, this uh, podcast happened very quickly after he, he suggested that uh, we connect. So thank you to him too. Absolutely. Matt is an incredible guy and I'm very, very excited that he created this connection for us. So when we were kind of connecting on Zoom here, the microphone came up and the camera wasn't up yet. 
and you started whispering and it just took me right back. My wife is into those ASMR videos, which is not, not sadomasochism. I guess it's something to do with, with whispering into the mic. But I was kind of chuckling to myself because <laughs> you were testing, but you were whispering. And I'm like, huh, this is the thing my wife showed me. And then here it, went, it manifested right here. It was meant to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But people make a lot of money doing that stuff, which is bizarre. But uh, anyway, um, I digress. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So I'm actually located just outside of Fort Hood, Texas, so Central Texas area. Beautiful. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Absolutely. So I'm originally from Washington State, from a very small town called Marysville, which is about 45 minutes north if there is no traffic from Seattle. So pretty much the Canadian border for those who are not familiar. I have my mom and my dad and a half sibling um, from my mom's side of the family. And my family dynamic is actually pretty diverse. We were mostly military, a lot of Navy, uh, some Marines and a lot of law enforcement and individuals in the nursing industry. So as far as parents, what, which, which of those roles were they playing? So with my mom, she was mostly a stay-at-home mom, and my dad did a lot of contract work. Um, my parents' generation was the one generation that kind of diverged from military service, like my grandparents and my great-grandparents, they served a lot of my aunts and uncles and my direct parents did not though. It wasn't until my generation came to be where a lot of my cousins and I actually joined the service from Marines to Air Force and then like myself, the Army. So I always ask this, <clears throat> the more I've uh, kind of learned through this podcast, the more the element of multi-generational trauma becomes apparent. And if people happen to have, you know, older uncles, grandparents that are still alive when they start getting a little older, maybe even to these professions in the uniform, it's intriguing to hear if they noticed the impact of that generation's service through your eyes. So did you did you notice any, you know, pros or cons from your extended family service through, you know, what you know now as as someone who's worked in uniform yourself? Absolutely. So my great grandfather on my mom's side of the family was an E-9 and stationed at Pearl Harbor when Pearl Harbor was attacked. And one thing that always resonated with me when I was growing up was my great grandma would tell stories about how my great grandfather disappeared for three days. And he was so mad at her because he couldn't find his car keys. So he was on on post housing. He saw the planes coming in, the bombing, and he was yelling at her, you know, Gertrude, Gertrude, where are my car keys? And they couldn't find his car keys. And he just took off running down the road. And that was the last my great grandma had seen of him for three whole days. She didn't know if he was dead, alive. She couldn't hear any information because back in those days, it was a lot harder, right, to disseminate information. And when my grandfather served, he remembered watching the planes fly over Pearl Harbor when he was just a boy. And that carried over when he joined the Navy. My great-grandfather did not want him to join the service, but he did. And he served in the Korean War. And my great-grandfather never talked about what he saw that day when Pearl Harbor was attacked. Um, I just remember he had the plates, you know, Washington State had these special plates that said Pearl Harbor survivor. And so that would 
that's all you would know. He would never talk about it. And after my great grandfather passed, it was unfortunate because a lot of those stories were important to know from our family, right? But he just wouldn't share them. My grandfather, on the other hand, shared a lot of his stories from the Korean War. And that's what helped to inspire me to want to join the service myself. And I wanted to join the Navy originally, and it wasn't until my sister started dating and eventually married an Army service member that my focus shifted, and I got to hear a different side of things, because he had joined before 9-11, and they were dating when the Twin Towers fell. And so I saw that shift, which it's it's interesting when you talk about generational influences, because for both my brother-in-law, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, there were very key moments in time that definitely changed their perspective and also changed mine and, you know, subsequently others who served in my family. So the Korean War is often referred to as the Forgotten War. You know, we talk about our Vietnam vets coming home to, you know, horrendous treatment, but I'd say as bad, if not worse, was being in a conflict that was almost ignored. So yes. what did he talk about as far as time serving and then did he have any reflection on almost the uh, the lack of acknowledgement of the sacrifice he made for this country? For my grandfather, it was really difficult because his father, you know, the generation before, they were the heroes. World War II was the, you know, the greatest generation, the greatest, you know, war. It was the glory days. And I think when he joined the service himself, he kind of expected the same welcoming when he came home, the same recognition, and it was not there for him. Um, the support network was one thing he talked about a lot, how he kept contact with those he had served with in the Navy, um, but it was nothing like he saw with his father. And no one, there wasn't that welcoming of thank you for your service mentality or anything like that. It was like, oh, you served in the Korean War. It's it's like Americans didn't pay attention to it as World War II. And, you know, Vietnam, of course, it was the exact opposite effect of that. Um, the only relative I had was my uncle from my parents' generation that served. And so my grandfather's only son went to Vietnam. And when he came back, he was airborne and he by all accounts for my family, did not come back the same. He got heavily into drugs. Um, he actually kind of was a drifter for a bit, painting bridges across Washington State, and he was very reckless with his life. Um, he would paint bridges without wearing any of the safety harnesses or equipment. And I think there was a lot of guilt he would when he would drink, he would share stories of guilt. Um, and it it was interesting. It was interesting to hear the differences between my family who served in World War II from Korean War and then the Vietnam War. They were not the same stories or the same welcoming back home. It's it's truly it's interesting to see. So for a long time, I believe that, you know, the World War II generation all had the ticker tape parades and, you know, the, the iconic kisses at the docks. And then you start unpacking granddad's story, quote unquote, and you realize how that generation struggled too, because how could you do what those incredible men and women did and then just come home 
you know, and go back to society. And it's interesting when you think about 1950s America, you had these men and women just a few short years before, you know, dying on all these these battlegrounds all over the country, si- mm-hmm. fighting alongside all colors and creeds, fighting for complete strangers. And then the 50s, women belong in the pit kitchen. Some people are still hanging black people from trees. And it's just such a, just, I, I still fail to understand that kind of 1945 to 1960 period and how, you know, what happened. Because I think so many of them buried things so deep, they probably didn't even have the capacity to say, look, you know, what what's going on is wrong. So, you know, we had that real pendulum swing the opposite way you know men uh, women were working the factories and doing the quote-unquote male jobs and then you know what rivet was rosie the riveter is now told to get back in the kitchen and shut up so very very strange right and in washington state in particular it was really interesting because we had a large asian community right and so my great-grandfather just talking about you know those differences when he came back it was very hard for him to be around Japanese Americans. He had a very hard time adjusting with that. My grandfather in the Korean War, you know, he would share stories about how they would shell, you know, the shoreline and they would bring in their artillery pieces and hide them in the caves. And then the second the shelling stopped, they would bring them back out and start, you know, aiming towards the ships. And he also carried that animosity really towards Korean Americans and it for me i never understood it right because i never saw combat during those times and you know with my my uncle he felt the same way towards any vietnamese americans and like i said washington state we have a large asian population there and um that never changed for any of them my grandfather died about i want to say 10 years ago And he held that all the way up to the end. Now, he was never went out of his way to say anything or be rude, but he never felt comfortable either. Um, Those are memories that carried with him from his younger years all the way up to when he died. And that's hard for me to wrap my own brain around. Well, it's so sad as well, because, I mean, you take a a moment like the football game in the middle of World War One, the Christmas Day football game. Right. And you have these young men and sometimes women that probably never dreamed of going to war with a different country but you have these few people in power you know these these tyrants and we have, we have our own tyrants in this country too that will you know at, on a whim send our children to go kill each other and it's so sad because then you know post 9/11 all of a sudden anyone who was arab or hindu or um you know any kind of attributed religion was then kind of targeted by some groups after that when obviously what was actually happening is there were extremists in these countries that were terrorizing their own people that also were responsible for the attacks in in england and america and some of the other places right and you also had people who just looked the part you know we we saw in washington state there are a few stories that popped up after 9-11 happened of people being attacked who weren't even you know of that nationality um they were Hispanic. They just so happened to look like they were from, you know, Middle East or or whatnot. And it was it was so sad to see how people responded. And a lot of it was just fear and ignorance. Absolutely. And yeah, no, we, we saw a bit of that even in a culturally diverse area like the Pacific Northwest. 
So, well, I appreciate that, you know, kind of uh, expanding on the family stories, because as you said, so many of these voices have been lost and the danger is just like the 1980s action heroes that I grew up being told that was what a man was. If we're left with these two dimensional, you know, myth, mythical idea about World War II, well, then what a great recruitment that is to go do another war. These are the greatest generation in the world, rather than the horror stories that really happen in war, along with some incredible heroism and the uh, what we did for the people in Europe is, is phenomenal. But we have to hear the bad side as well. And people don't want to hear the bad side. They want the John Wayne movies, but John Wayne never fucking served. <laughs> that's that's right. that's Hollywood. We need to hear these. So I appreciate you kind of telling us, you know, your family's perspective. So, Absolutely. So you mentioned having all these different members of the military and law enforcement in your family. Um, when you were at the school age, what were you dreaming of becoming? So I actually originally wanted to go into the Navy when I was younger. And I was about 12 years old when my sister, who's seven years older than me, um, started dating a service member. And he was infantry, right? He was with one of the first striker uh, brigades ever in the U.S. based out of Fort Lewis, Washington, before they ended up moving over to Hawaii later on. And like I said, this was just before everything went down. And after talking with him and kind of hanging around these infantry guys, because that was my only experience with the Army, I fell in love with aviation. It's like, I want to be a pilot. Specifically, I wanted to be a Black Hawk pilot. And so from about 12 onward, I'm like, I'm going to be an army helicopter pilot. I watched all the movies, you know, Black Hawk Down and heard all the stories from these infantry guys about how amazing it was to be supported by Apaches or, you know, Kiowas or jumping on a Chinook or a Black Hawk. And I just loved it. I became completely enthralled in this idea in this image of wanting to join and fly and support the guys on the ground, like the infantry. That was what I wanted. I'm like, I want to support and be there for these guys on the ground. So as far as athletics and sports, obviously you about to enter into a very physical um, profession. What were you playing in the school age again? So when I was younger, I was basketball once upon a time, but I also did a lot of volunteer work. So I was part of civil air patrol for for many years and i was also part of uh, search and rescue as well volunteer in washington state so with that just going to a topic that comes up a lot we live in a generation at the moment where a lot of people like to point fingers at what's wrong without stepping outside their door and becoming part of the solution talk to me about the impact of any of the mentors that you had in that kind of volunteer service space prior to the military? So we had a lot of prior service individuals, particularly in search and rescue. And one thing that really resonated with me was their desire for a continued service. And so they kind of found this little niche in search and rescue where they're not necessarily wearing a uniform again, but there's that sense of community and that camaraderie. And when I was younger, I never really understood that. And it's not something that, like, I get that now. But back then, I'm like, oh, okay, well, I guess it's it's something really cool they want to do. That's what I want to do. I want to go help people. But for them, it wasn't just helping others. It was also finding something to help themselves. There was 
a lot of them would kind of group together, right? They'd find other veterans and they'd end up kind of latching onto them. And they'd reminisce about things in the military, both the good, the bad, the humorous, you know, the dark humor side of things. And it was something that I always observed, but never really fully understood at the time. I just thought, oh, okay, you know, they just have something in common. And then when my brother-in-law went to war, they he was part of the initial invasion force into Iraq. So fast forward this a little bit. And it I started to see those changes from when he first deployed to mid-deployment. And one of the biggest things that happened with him was the uh, Mosul uh, lunchroom bombing. And I'll never forget my sister who had my nephew just recently born at the time. We're watching the news and all we can see was this low resolution, you know, explosion and these low resolution pictures of this lunchroom that had just someone had gone in there with a backpack with explosives. And you just saw the patches, right? The little uh, leaf with the lightning bolt on it patches. And we didn't hear from my brother-in-law for several days. And this was just before the holiday season. And then when she did hear from him, you know, his voice, he was more tired. You know, we would put together these care packages for him. My mom worked at the time in the law firm in downtown Seattle. So we do these big fundraisers and put together these care packages because he's like, we need stuff to hand out to the kids. So they're in Iraq, um, out of Mosul, and they're like, send us pens, beanie babies, things like that. He's like, we need to build relationships with these communities. They, they don't trust us. And so we'd send over care packages after care packages. And my brother-in-law initially was like, you know, this is great. And he'd send us these pictures with all these, you know, Iraqi children hanging on him and he's smiling and they're smiling. They were tired but in relatively good spirits. And then the initial attack on Felicia happened. Everything changed. Um, he stopped talking as much. You could hear the strain in his voice. And we wouldn't find this out till later, but those same kids that he'd be handing, you know, Beanie Babies to and Pens to, um, that he had been working on building those relationships for months were the same kids that when he went in there, had firearms. And it was one of those, this is a child that I've gotten to know, but now they're holding the gun against me and my squad. And it devastated him. And so, you know, he also shared stories about things that happened in his unit um, with some of these guys that would come over to my parents' house for barbecues or go out on their boat and hang out of things that they did over there. You know, um, and like you said earlier, there's there's the good, honorable side of war and what we do. That's what you hear about in the news. That's what you talk about. And then there's this other darker side of things that can happen. And that gets glazed over and because no one really wants to talk about it. You know, one of the things his unit did for no reason at all is they just killed this farmer's donkey. And they thought it was funny. And that really bothered my brother-in-law. And so when he tried to push back, you know, he was a squad leader at the time. His unit pushed back even harder. And that really bothered him. Um, and so when he came back, 
seeing this guy who was smiling and happy was not the same individual who came back from Iraq. And I still wanted to serve in the military. I guess I didn't quite understand at the time. I thought, oh, well, you know, he just had a bad unit. And so I did my own rationalization in my head, you know. He just had some bad, you know, some guys that weren't good in the unit, but overall everything's still, you know, good. And um, it was interesting. It's like all these pieces from my family, from my great-grandfather to my grandfather to my uncle, and then to my brother-in-law, they start falling into place, but it's like you don't necessarily piece it together. At least I wouldn't until I went into the service myself. If that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense because here yeah. I am now outside the fire service having aha moment after aha moment when I lived it for 14 years and didn't really get it. And I think that's one of the things is when you're in it, you almost don't have the capacity to see the wood for the trees. As I say, you're just too close and you're, you know, tired and you've been told what to do and where to go and what to eat and how to shave and all these things. And then you take a step back and, and you get this wider perspective and then you start going, ah, you know, and, and having these conversations with people outside your profession as well. And you see these parallels in for me in the military and in law enforcement and in medicine and, you know, and, and this, this human experience. But why we're so good at what we do is we're trained and then we do what we're trained to do. And that autonomy piece, if you think about it, is somewhat discouraged. Yes, you're a, a critical thinker in the job that you do, but it's it's uh, against the indoctrination that we buy into to push back too hard and question things because it's called freelancing or you know insubordination or whatever. When right. actually it's like, well, maybe the way we're doing it is fucking stupid and we should start <laughs> changing things. Right. But you can't do that as a firefighter with one year on, I mean, you wouldn't even realize that things were wrong. But now, from the outside looking in, yeah, I, I understand. And with the change in him and then with what made the search and rescue mentors that you had uh, find a real uh, value in what they were doing is they wanted to serve. That's what took them into the military. And I think that's what's missing in so many people's transition is having mm -hmm. some purpose, some semblance of service again some tribe as you transition out of the uniform professions right and it's finding that community it's even when you're in it you know you joke about the early mornings and pt and the cold and, and all of the the ridiculousness of hurry up and wait you know but when you come out of it there is this weird void of that sense of structure of community and it's hard to translate that to the civilian sector to have conversations. Like when I first got out, it was, I spoke in acronyms more than I ever realized until my civilian friends would point out, like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and my, my speech changed just from serving. Like how I spoke was different. I also cursed so much more, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, it changed me. And so it was, it was hard at first to transition when I got out. And yeah, I understood now looking back, why they would form these little close-knit circles within search and rescue. It's like, okay, these people understand, they get it. They're going to be my community. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to your transition, but I'm kind of jumping the gun a little bit. So let's talk about your journey into the military. What made you choose the branch that you did and then walk me through your journey to aviation? Okay, yeah. Um, so I took... You know, there's like that linear line, right? From A to B. 
Mine was all sorts of zigzags. So when I was younger, I used to, this is back in the days of MySpace, for those of you who remember MySpace, (laughs) uh, the original social media page. I was part of a group that would send care packages to single soldiers. So here I am, you know, uh, 19 years old, finishing up with my associate's degree. And I'm like, you know what? I want to send care packages like I did back in the day with my mom and my sister to my brother-in-law and, you know, his, you know, fellow service members overseas. And so I joined this group and I get all these names from soldiers to send care packages to. And so my goal was, I'm like, okay, I'm going to finish college and then I'm going to join the military and I'm going to fly helicopters. And I was like, this is my goal. This is what I want to do. But in the meantime, I'm going to help service members by sending care packages. Well, one of these service members um, was my husband, though I wouldn't know it at the time. Um, (laughs) I sent a care package to him while he was deployed overseas. And it was really funny because we started corresponding um, in a letter and then we exchanged our, you know, AIM, you know, our AOL instant messenger, you know, we'll try the counts. I know I'm like really aging myself right now because <laughs> there's going to be people listening to us like, I have no idea what she's talking about. But the little chat windows, that's what we used to do back in the day. And we just started talking. And it just so happened that this was during the surge years of the military. So he was on a crazy long deployment. So instead of like the traditional 12 months like the army was doing, he was closer to 16 long deployment. And he's like, you know, I've never been out to Seattle before. I've always wanted to go. So when I come up on my R&R, I want to come out and meet you. I was like, oh boy. Okay. (laughs) Sure. And, you know, we really connected because he did the service route I wanted to go. So he was a West Pointer. Um, Originally, I had wanted to to go to West Point at one point, but then I ended up like, oh, I want more of the traditional college experience. And he was an Apache pilot. I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. He's a he's a helicopter pilot in the army. Like we have so much in common, right? Um, and so he came out to Seattle to come meet me. And the rest was history. We just clicked. We spent the entire two weeks together and we ended up getting married. And so here I am, you know, just turned 21, got married, and then we got pregnant with our first and only child, so our son. And I had him. And by this point, I had taken a tactical pause from college. So I'd gotten my associate's degree, but I hadn't applied for my bachelor's program yet. And so when my son was younger, um, about two years old, I'm like, okay, you know what? I want to get back into it because if I don't jump right back into college, it's never going to happen. I hear all these stories of people who are like, I'll go back, you know, but they don't. I'm like, okay, I'm going to apply to the University of Washington and I'm I'm going to join the military. So I was looking into their ROTC program and applied to the UW, got into the UW, applied to ROTC, got into that. And so I was a military spouse, you know, for a couple of years before I went into ROTC myself. So a very odd way of doing things. And I was part of their accelerate program, essentially in ROTC. So I never did my full four years because I already had my associate. So I did two years and then commissioned. And it was a really 
trying period. Um, super fulfilling, but there were so many bumps in the road along the way. Being a a mom of a young child going to school full time and doing ROTC was challenging enough. During this period, my husband also got orders to go to a different state. So I couldn't just transfer to a new university or a new ROTC program. So before I knew it, I was a geographically single parent going to school full time, going to ROTC while my husband was at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And it got even more challenging because this happened during my first year in ROTC. And so I moved in with my my dad, commuting back and forth, um, hour each way, you know, getting up at three o'clock in the morning to make that morning PT and then trying to balance all of these different factors, right? Being a mom, being a, you know, a wife, it, it was hard. And then during my last year of ROTC, I was so swamped with everything going on um, that my husband actually ended up taking our son. So all of a sudden I went from geographically single parents to I'm all by myself, which took a toll on its own. But it was a sacrifice that my family made, that I made as well. And so for two years, my husband and I didn't get to live together. It was every break. Um whether it was a long, you know, week-long break for Thanksgiving or winter break or summer break from school, that was the bulk of us being able to spend time together. And it was, it was, it was rough, but Persevere made it through, um, ended up going to my bullet or my uh, LDAC, which is our big training accumulation. And I ended up commissioning at the end of that as a second lieutenant. Didn't know of what, but just a second lieutenant. And um, not too long after that, I found out that I got active duty Army aviation. And so it was perfect. It was a lot of hard work and sacrifice to get a position that was statistically really hard to get. Branching aviation is not very easy in ROTC. So like West Point, where my husband went, they get a lot of aviation slots. ROTC gets you know, some slots as well. And then um, OCS will get whatever remains essentially. And so went to Fort Rucker, Alabama for training. And um, that's where if you're not familiar with Army aviation, so that's if you're going to go and be a pilot, they will send you to Fort Rucker, Alabama for all of your training. So you go through your initial rotary wing training, uh, Bullock, SEER, Advanced Airframe, you name it. And so while I was in the army, there were some interesting things happening during this time. So when my husband joined, it was, he was at West Point before September 11th. So he was there, I believe in his junior year when 9-11 happened. So my husband's older than me by uh, six years. And so he got to see this whole evolution from peacetime army into America being attacked to the initial invasion. So by this point in my career, I'm joining in after the surge years. So I've heard all the stories between him and my brother-in-law. And so I had a very different mentality of what the military was. It's busy, you know, you're mission focused. But by the time I had joined, we were entering what was called the drawdown period. So we had 
a lot of service members from all the branches who were being separated because they were trying to bring that force posture um, for our numbers down, right? And so by the time I got into Rucker, there was some really interesting stuff going on. Um, They had just decided to get rid of the Kiowa helicopter. So the Kiowa was the predominant scouting helicopter for a while. And we had all of these Kiowa pilots hanging around, right? Tons of them. And at first I didn't understand, you know, as this brand new second lieutenant, but I saw the stress that all of these warrant officers, commissioned officers and enlisted who had been, you know, working on these helicopters were experiencing because they were scared they weren't going to get retirement. And the reason why I bring this up is it it kind of shapes what I saw the culture at the time. So Fort Rucker took in all these aviators that they could who were not quite to that retirement window. So you have to serve so many years before you can get retirement or be safe. And so these guys were like one to three years shy, right? And so they're hiding out at Rucker and trying to put them into the Apache helicopter, you know, to transition them by and large. And so there was a lot of bitterness when I was there. There was a lot of people who had the Kiowas who were like, hey, Army Aviation really kind of screwed us over. You know, they left us out to dry. Um, They felt betrayed. And so it was a really weird culture to walk into where it's like, okay, there's a lot of animosity here. And so when I went through my training, um, worked really hard, once again, geographical bachelor. So at this point I had my son and my husband was deployed in Kuwait at the time. So his first non-technical combat tour, you know, by this point he had already you know, had three combat tours. So he was over in Kuwait. So I wasn't too worried because it's like, oh, you know, it's it's Kuwait. He's he's fine. But it was hard. Um, early morning flight line, you know, I had to deal with things that my peers didn't have to. You know, I would wake up two hours before them to get my son ready, bring him into a special child care development center or CDC and had to make all these special arrangements being you know, essentially a single parent. And it it was rough. Um, but, you know, I did my training and never had any issues, no failures or anything like that. And I was so happy. Um, I ended up selecting the Apache, right? So what my husband flies. So I went from, I'm going to be a Blackhawk pilot to I'm going to be an Apache pilot. And, you know, that shift came mostly from being around my husband in that community and going back to my brother-in-law. It's like, I love the idea of being a guardian angel, right? Being there, you know, there for air support, you know, in the sky and, and helping them. And it's, um, it was the happiest day of my life, selecting the Apache. It's was like everything, all of that sacrifice of being separated from my husband you know, from being separated from my son, from those early morning wake-ups, those long drives, everything was worth it. And it was great until it wasn't. And so going back to that first year, that new, that new guy, right? You see those things that are wrong that you didn't necessarily know would be there until you get into it. I am the type of person, if there is something 
morally wrong. I have a very hard time looking the other way. It could be a character strength. It could be a character flaw, depending on who you ask. Um, and for me, I I saw a fellow aviator who was doing things that I did not agree with. Being around the aviation community for the years that I had been, you know, as a military spouse, particularly, or you know, my my time in the service, you start to hear the stories of people who don't put in the work to be a good pilot, right? You know, they don't study or train like they used to. They're they're not upheld to the same standards and it puts themselves, their, you know, co-pilot because Army Aviation, it's a two-pilot aircraft. So there's always another pilot on board. Or if you are Black Hawk or a Chinook pilot, other souls on board, you know, you owe it to your co-pilot and to anyone who's on your aircraft to be the best version of yourself. And this particular individual um, was cheating on her exams and was doing things to pass check rides for to advance her career and to meet certain gates that she and requirements she had to as an aviator. And it was like, look. I have known too many people who have died in aviation and I've, I've seen and heard too many stories. It's like this, this is a flight safety concern. And so I went in to my chain of command. I said, Hey, I'm, I want to do an anonymous report of essentially a flight safety. And I laid out the reasons why. And by this point I had tried to speak with this individual, you know, she didn't really want to hear it. Because I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try and deal with this at the lower at the lower level. When that failed, went to my chain of command, tried to report. And I thought, okay, everything's going to be taken care of. I did my due diligence. Let's carry on. About two weeks later, I get a call from brigade level at this point. And saying, hey, we would love for you to make a sworn statement. You don't have to make a sworn statement, but... We would love it if you did. That way we can go forward and do the things we need to do. So as a junior officer, I'm like, okay, that that absolutely makes sense. And at this point, my husband's like, just be careful. You know, this you want to fly into the radar, you know, especially as a junior officer, you want to fly into the radar. I'm like, no, you know, I I get that. I go, but if she ends up balling up an aircraft, right? And someone else dies as a result, like I can't look at myself in the mirror. I, I can't. This is what I need to do. So I did. And everything was pretty quiet at first. You know, she went under investigation and I didn't know at that point any of the results of it. And then came to find that she had gotten a GOMAR. So a general officer uh, letter of reprimand or a memorandum of reprimand. And it's like, okay, so that that is done that is that is taken care of oh boy i was terribly terribly wrong um i did not know at the time that she had friends in higher places i did not know this i also did not know that there were other factors that wouldn't come out until later on um where this would play a part and so before i know it few months had gone by and by a few months I mean like six or seven months had gone by and then I get called in 
and I'm placed under an investigation. And it's like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) And they're like, well, we're investigating you because, you know, you're carpooling and you're hanging out with, you know, other male pilots and blah, 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 perception, this perception, that. And it's, was like, I'm, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> like, I I have other pilots, they're guys. Like, I hate to say it, that's most of Army aviation. Like, they're mostly guys. Like, I, it's two pilot aircraft, there's mostly guys. And um, it's, it just, it blew my mind. And then I come to find that the investigation started because that same girl that I had turned in for essentially a flight safety had gone in and made an accusation. And it turned into this spiraling effect of I'm pulled from the flight line. You know, I'm placed on administrative hold, essentially. I can't PCS. I can't go to specialty schools. I can't do anything because I'm at this point having to fight for my career. And everyone told me they're like it's going to be fine it's going to blow over like there's nothing there is nothing that you did wrong there is no evidence of anything because you haven't done anything wrong and it's like no like how how do i fight perception how do i fight studying with a male pilot how do i fight carpooling with a male pilot to the flight line like how 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 do you fight a perception when a perception is literally being spoken by someone who has an axe to grind because you turn them in for flight safety. And I literally for about a month was just waiting in this holding pattern. Like this is just dumb. This, this is going to blow over. Everything's going to be fine. And then it wasn't, um, you know, they came back and they're like, look, um, we're going to say that it's, perception of inappropriate relationship, albeit not sexual in nature, because you were carpooling with a male pilot, you were studying with male pilots. And it was, it was crazy. It's like, that's not even a UCMJable effect. There's literally nothing in there that states perception of an inappropriate relationship, albeit not sexual in nature. Like, what does that even mean? So at this point, I had to get my congressman's office involved. So my home of record, Washington State, I contact my congressman's office and explain the situation. And, you know, to his office's credit, they have a whole department that's dedicated for military congressional inquiries. You know, so they reach out to the installation and they say, hey, um, we have this army officer. This is a complaint. We want to follow up, provide us with this paperwork. And they ignored them. My congressman's office four different times tried to reach out to the legal department of this installation and was ignored. And this is where my own, I hate to use the word perception here, but it's appropriate. My own perception of the military became very, very skewed. You know, it was always to my understanding that there are these safety nets, these checks and balances in the system. If something goes wrong, you as a service member who I've signed the dotted line, I will give my life for my country, which is the most precious thing I have to give, has certain protections in place if something goes terribly wrong where someone else can come in and help. 
congressional inquiry was supposed to be one of them. I came to find that Congress, which is supposed to have this oversight, right, of the military, um, a congressional inquiry doesn't necessarily mean anything. If someone would have told me beforehand that a congressman's office in the congressional inquiry could be ignored by military installation, I would have laughed. I'm like, that, that couldn't be true. I saw it firsthand. So then I went to my office of the inspector general, the IG office on my installation. I said, hey, this is what's happening. I'm being retaliated against. Like literally the girl that I had turned in for flight safety is making these counter accusations. There's no evidence to support its merit. And now my timeline's being messed up. As a junior officer, as a junior army aviator, I have to do certain things in order to be promoted, in order to progress in my career. And everything is being messed up. I'm at this point, I'm being put on multiple duties. So like I would go on a 24 hour CQ duty and then literally just hours later be put on a 12 hour staff duty. And it was insane. And the IG office is like, okay, yeah, no, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll pick this up and we'll look into it. And then they're like, oh no, we, we can't, um, because your complaint goes all the way up the chain of command. And so we need to take this to the next level. And it's like, does what does that mean? I don't understand what that means. And then you come to find like the IG has no teeth. The Office of the Inspector General, they're just advisors. They have no legal authority. It's like, okay. So then it's like, well, go back to my congressman's office. And congressman's office is like, well, if they say that, it goes all the way up the chain of command and they can't handle it. They're like, then go to the department of the army IG. I'm like, okay, then I will do that. So by this point, I am putting together a rebuttal, right? To these accusations made against me. And I have sworn statements. I have text messages and, and the, the key text message that I got that I gave to my chain of command prior to my investigation even starting. And this is this is actually a key part I forgot to mention earlier, is this girl had actually sent a text message threatening to do this very thing. Like a text message. And I had given it to my chain of command and said, hey, look, I've received this threat. Can you please do something about it? Saying that she was going to spread rumors and basically start an investigation against me but they never did. And so for me, I'm like, I mean, this is key right here. She literally is threatening to do this very thing. So I have that in my rebuttal packet. And um, I sent it back up the chain of command. And for those who do not understand how it works, when you're dealing with something that is administrative in nature. So my thing was considered administrative in nature, meaning there was no article like 15. There was no like jury there was no like there's none of that it's literally just the thought processes of the chain of command from the company battalion up to brigade and then eventually goes all the way up to the cg of the installation so when you rebut something at an administrative level it's literally the same people that it goes through there is no unbiased new party that looks at it the same people who made the same initial decisions and made the same judgment calls they see the rebuttal. 
it's it's them it's the same individuals and where that becomes important is when you're dealing with a system in the military where your promotion is based on evaluations and it's an up and out system right if you don't make a certain rank you're not going to retire if you do not have, you know, a certain evolve, you're not going to extend, even if you're in that retirement window, you're not going to extend beyond. So if you want to make a, you know, 06 or a GO one day, you've got to have those good evals. So if your same rebuttal paperwork is going through the same individuals who made that call, they don't want their boss to look at that and be like, how did you miss this before? It's admitting your own fault. And unfortunately, what ends up happening in these investigations is you have the lower level makes their call. So company level, right? Well, the battalion commander is really busy. So they're probably just going to, you know, and this is me making an assumption, but it's something that I also saw in the military. They're going to look at their, you know, subordinate and be like, I trust this commander. I trust this commander. So I'm just going to go off of what you know, he says, and then they'll push that up to their boss. And so that's a chain effect that happens. You're trusting your lower leadership to do the right thing and you bless off on it. So when this rebuttal comes up, no one wants to admit, oh, I didn't read it or, oh, maybe I should have done more. I shouldn't have trusted. So you're signing your own incompetency, essentially. And so no surprise, my rebuttal got tossed out. So the next phase is there is an inquiry board, right? This inquiry board is supposed to be separate from the main army. And so when the board got my paperwork to include my rebuttal, I was notified by the director of the army review board's agency. He said, hey, um, I see in here that you have 68 enclosures for evidence to support your rebuttal, but all of the enclosures are missing. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? He's like, yeah, uh, I see that you have a page that has everything itemized, but all of the actual documents are missing. And so at this point, it's like, did the installation remove the documents? Did they just not send the evidence? And so I had to rush and get all of that stuff sent to the review board agency. So by this point, I'm in this waiting period, this holding period. My timeline's being messed up even more. And at this point, we're looking at over six months of me not being able to do my job, just waiting, right? So in the meantime, I'm like, you know what? I am going to do an open door policy. I am, I am going to fix this. I'm going to actually talk with everyone in my chain of command. And I'm going to brief them my rebuttal because at this point... I don't even know if they read it. You know, I saw the sign off along the way and I know that one of these individuals wasn't even at the installation. He was out of state when this was signed, which means more than likely an aide signed it for him. So it's like, you know, I'm I'm going to do open door policy. That is one of my sacred rights as a service member is to request an open door policy. So start all the way at the bottom. Company commander. I go in there with my rebuttal paperwork. I go in there with everything and I brief him for over two hours. And my company commander had another officer 
who was sitting in the room. And when I brought up the piece of that text message, he looked and he was just like, I remember that. I remember she sent that text message. And he looked back at him and the company commander was just like, kind of looked at him and there was just like this dumbfound moment, this disconnect. And it's like, yeah, this, <laughs> here it was right here. And so my company commander's like, okay, well, uh, well, I'll take all of this into consideration, but I can't do anything. So you're going to have to go talk to the battalion commander. So then I go, a couple days goes by, I go to the battalion commander and I've got the, you know, command sergeant major in the room and my company commander in the room. And I brief all the evidence and what blows my mind is the battalion commander. And this was a major red flag for me. When I walked in there, he's like, I want you to brief this as if I had never read it before. It's like, okay, I, I, I get what's going on here. And I brief him everything. I literally go through line by line of absolutely everything. And one of the things I end with is look, if this was an issue of perception, it should have been addressed to me so I could have had the chance to fix it. But since no one ever told me that there was a perception, I never had the chance. And the command sergeant major looked over to the battalion commander and he's like, hey, can she leave the room for a moment? So I get dismissed. I go into the hallway and maybe five to seven minutes later, I'm brought back into the room and the command sergeant major tells me, he's like, you know, this really resonates with me. He's like, we failed you. We should have brought this to your attention. You should have had the chance to fix it. He's like, because how do you know that there's a perception if you're not aware of it? And so the battalion commander, you know, looks to me, he's like, Hey, he's like, you know, I wish we could have talked about this sooner. And, um, but we're, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna see what we can do. So my next step is I had to talk to the brigade commander. I go into the brigade commander's office and I've got the brigade command sergeant major sitting there with him. And I go and I sit down, I do my same brief. And the brigade commander looks over to the brigade command sergeant major and says, wow, this packet's a little thicker than I remember it. And so then that brought up another question in the back of my mind. It's like where something has happened along the way. There are things that have gone wrong along this thought process of, of this exchange rather of documents. And so same thing. Hey, you're going to go all the way up to the boss. You're going to get 15 minutes. And by the boss, this is the command in general of the installation. He's like, you're going to get 15 minutes. He's like, and we're going to be there with you. So I put on my, my dress uniform, right? My, my military dress blues. And I go to the post headquarters building. And I have everyone there. I have at this point, the new company commander who had just taken over my battalion commander and my brigade commander all in their dress blues there to support me. Right. And when I get there, I'm in the deputy, you know, um, CG's office. And at this point, my brigade commander gets taken off 
into a separate room and come to find the commander wasn't there. We all showed up there and the commander was not there. The CG was not even there. So I'm told, you know, by his, his deputy that the ship had already sailed, that my timeline was, was ruined and basically there's nothing that could be done about it. And I will never forget going back home and I was devastated, just completely devastated. You know, at this point, I had tried absolutely everything to correct a perception of an inappropriate relationship, albeit not sexual in nature, which no one could even describe to me exactly what that means. And it's everything that I thought that I had known, all of these checks and balances, all these thought processes, everything was just completely shattered. And it's hard to describe that feeling of just loss of, of feeling like everything has gone so terribly, terribly wrong. And to be in such a dark place of despair, because for those who've never, you know, served or, you know, done public service in another sector outside the military, it's like, this is your life. When you're brought into this world, you are told it is the best place to be. You are the best. You're among the best. Um, you're you're built up and you're you're sold into this culture, into this idea. And there's so much sacrifice along the way to just not only get there, but to stay there. And all of those childhood dreams, you know, wanting to to go into combat to support those guys on the ground, everything was completely shattered. And it's I had gotten into such a dark place. Because I come home, I picked up my son who was at my uh, friend's house, who was a neighbor, and I put him to bed and I went into the bathroom, right? So at this point, my husband's still deployed. <laughs> you know, I've got my, my son who is, what, kindergarten at this time, so really young. I go into the bathroom and I just, I remember thinking to myself, like, the most precious thing that I can give is my life my life and i was not even worth 15 minutes of the cg's time and that makes you feel like you're about one inch tall you know you feel worthless and so one thing a lot of people you know don't know is you know it's when i went into the bathroom i you know I don't remember anything beyond just closing the door. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to caveat this because for some people, this might be really difficult to hear, but I do not remember um, like going into the closet. I don't remember grabbing my gun. I don't remember leaning against the door in my bathroom. And I don't remember sitting on the floor with a gun to my head. But what I do remember is for some reason I had put my son to bed and for some reason, he decided to come into my room, come all the way back to that bathroom and knock on that door. And all he said was mommy. And all of a sudden I was there. I was in that moment. I do not remember all those steps in between, you know, call it divine intervention or whatever it was. 
it terrified me because I'd realized how much I had bought into that indoctrination, essentially, that that this is all I have. I am not worthy. You know, I'm worthless. And it's it almost cost me everything. And it almost made me make a decision of something I could never take back. And it would have devastated those who cared about me. And these are things in the moment, you know, people who've never been there before. And I've, I've never been a suicidal person. I haven't been since then. But in that moment, it was such a dark, scary place. You don't even realize you're there. And you don't necessarily think about anyone or anything else because you're just in that dark place. And so when I got out, called my husband, and I have the best mother-in-law in the world. <laughs> my mother-in-law comes all the way down from Minnesota, and she stays with me. Because at this point, it's I needed someone else there. I send, you know, another IG complaint up like, Hey, you know what? You need to do something about this. That open door policy. You know what? That's an IG complaint. File another IG complaint at the installation. They're like, Nope, too high up the chain of command. We can't deal with it. So it's like, okay. (sighs) DAIG office. It is right all the way up to the Department of the Army IG office, and I recontact my congressman's office. As I'm waiting, three weeks goes by, I get letters saying I'm going to be involuntarily separated. So it's like, wow, it's like you're too high risk for promotion. You're you're not going to to make captain. So we're just going to go ahead and start involuntary separation process. And remember, this is during the drawdown period. So there's a lot of people being involuntarily separated. It's like, no, I don't want to be involuntarily separated. Like I want to serve, like, let me serve like this, this, none of this is okay. So go up to the IG office, um, tell them I'm, Hey, I'm filing with the department of the IG office, just so you know, because that's outside the chain of command here. It's all the way at the top. And I kid you not, this will also disturb people. I did not know that the open door policy, which we were always told was sacred, every commander has to have an open door policy. Open door policy is the right of any soldier from a private all the way up to the top for the chain of command. The Department of the Army IG office told me that it is only a requirement for a commander to have an open door policy. Not to honor it. And that that was it. My congressman's office reached out to the Department of the Army by this point because the installation hadn't been responding to them and actually filed a joint congressional inquiry with another congressman. And the Department of the Army got back to my congressman's office and basically said the same thing, that the installation doesn't have to respond. <laughs> and it's just like... it. At that point, everything was completely solidified for me. The checks and balances were not there. And so I got called in. At this point, it had been almost a full year, which at that point, it's it's hard. You know, there's a lot of things that happened in between, you know, from the start of this to the end of it, um, of just that would take so long to go into, but of of little acts of retaliation. And when I got called in to my company building, it's like, hey, here's the involuntary separate 
uh, and separation paperwork. Um, you're going to get honorable discharge, which yeah, of course I am, you know, <laughs> honorable discharge, but you're not going to, you know, serve your initial service obligation. So you're going to have to go report in and start clearing. And they only gave me two weeks, two weeks, that's it to clear the installation. So go through, you know, medical, go through housing, like all of that, two weeks. And I'll never forget the film. The last thing I had to do was go and get my DD-214 and turn in my cat card. And I had to do so in uniform. And I told my chain of command, I was like, look, I don't feel comfortable being in uniform and turning in my cat card because at that point, would I not be impersonating a military officer? Because at this point I have my DD-214, I've given you my cat card, but yet I'm in uniform. I go, I don't know. Like, no, no, no. You have to wear your uniform. But after you turn in your cat card, you have to take it off pretty much right away. It's like, that makes no sense, but okay. So I go through, I have my mom with me, my son's in the truck. I go in, I get my DD-214, you know, and it, it doesn't matter that it says honorable discharge. It doesn't matter that it says the specialty schools I've been to or the things that I had done. It, I wasn't happy. You know, people get their DD-214s like they're normally happy. But for me in that moment, that's not what I felt at all. I turned in my cat card and I walked out of the building and my mom was driving. She's like, you're not going to drive. I'm I'm, I'm going to drive. It's like, okay. You know, cause at this point my husband had just come back from Kuwait and he was stationed uh, at Fort Hood, you know, just got stationed. So get in the car. I'm like, mom, I need you to pull off to this gas station just outside the, you know, installation gate. And I'll never forget getting this duffel bag, right. With civilian clothes. And I go into this dingy gas station, you know, bathroom and I look at myself in the mirror. I'm like, this is the last time I'm ever going to see myself in this uniform. And it's literally standing in a dirty gas station bathroom. And I so clearly can remember the first time, you know, in ROTC, putting that uniform on and staring at myself in my bathroom mirror, you know, back in Washington state and feeling that sense of pride. And that reflection looking back at me was not the same. And so I change, I shove my uniform in a duffel bag and, you know, I head out and we make our way to Fort Hood, you know, to Texas. And at this point, I turn to my mom and I'm like, look, I had recorded a video because I'm like, a lot of people are going to ask me questions. I go, mom, I don't know how I'm going to answer. And so my original idea was I'm going to make this video and I'm going to share it with some of my my friends and my family because I don't want to have to share this story over and over and over again. It's it's too hard. And it my mom's like, you know, there's other people, Winnie, who are going to have gone through this. Like, how many people do you think actually talk about this? And I go, I I don't know, I don't know. I, I go, I I I'm sure there's lots. And, you know, it's, I made the decision to post it and I posted it on YouTube and I just kind of shared the link on my Facebook page and I just kind of walked away. And within hours, it started going viral all around Army Aviation. 
And all it was, was me talking about what happened. I did name drop a couple people, but this was originally supposed to be geared, you know, towards friends and family. Um, and before I knew it, I had hundreds and I'm not exaggerating hundreds of people over the next several months reaching out to me who had gone through similar experiences. And before I knew it, I'm sitting there and like online mentoring other people who had been there, who had gotten Go Mars, who had gotten Article 15s, you know, you name it. And it blew into something completely different from what I had originally intended, which was just, I don't want to have to share this over and over again, you know, to all of a sudden I find myself talking and trying to help other people who are either going through in the moment or had gone through similar experiences. And it was really difficult because during my last year of service, my, like I said, my timeline was messed up. I ended up requesting to be an honors detachment during that time. So working military funerals because I needed a purpose. I wasn't a pilot anymore at that point because I had been taken off the flight line. And so I found my purpose and honors detachment for military funerals. And I told other people who are going through it, like, find a purpose, find, find something to give you meaning, you know, Hey, this didn't work for me going to IG, but maybe it will work for you. And it was so hard to try and sit there and encourage other people to take steps that didn't work for me because I didn't want to come off as like jaded. It's like, it could, all it takes is the right person in a position and it could work. But the hardest thing was my husband. You gotta remember my husband's an army aviator. He's still in, you know, to this day, he's still in. And so it's, it's hard for him because he saw everything. He helped me write my rebuttal paperwork. And that's the thing that's so funny about, you know, the inappropriate relationship, albeit not sexual in nature. Like the one person who would matter most in that situation would be my husband, you know? And, you know, he's helping me write my rebuttal paperwork. His friends, you know, are also our behaviors are helping them, you know, helping me, you know, write and go through all of my evidence and organize timelines and everything. And so it, it was hard, you know, coming out of the service and um, still being around army aviation because my husband's in, you know, sitting across the table from former peers who at this point, everyone knew my story because I did not expect that video to go viral. And um, it was hard to support my husband in his career and internalize and go through my own thought processes. Cause at that point I was very angry, very, very angry. And I felt like I didn't have a purpose anymore. I felt betrayed. I felt humiliated um, and just angry, especially like aircraft. I couldn't even look at a helicopter for a while without feeling anger. And I used to be that nerd who a helicopter fly by and I just crane my neck up and, you know, like stare at it in the sky. And it was just like the things that I had loved my dreams and the things that brought me happiness had just been ripped out from under me. And so it came back around full circle in that moment where I'm like, I get it. I need to find a community. I need to find like-minded people. And so I ended up volunteering for an organization called Team Rubicon. And I found, I found other veterans. And so 
young, you know, 16-year-old Whitney volunteering back in Washington State Search and Rescue who would watch all the vets, you know, come together and make their little, you know, don't want to say clicks, but their own little, you know, communities within Search and Rescue. Um, all of a sudden, I understood why. So I'm, I'm in Team Rubicon, and at first I was kind of standoffish to kind of share my story because it's it's complicated, and it's not the picture-perfect, rosy you know, glory day service, you know, experience. And I, while I served in the military, I never had a combat tour. You know, my husband, he's had five now. I've never had a combat tour, you know, so I couldn't even connect like, hey, I'm I'm a combat veteran because I'm not. And so I just kind of, you know, eased into it. I was like, yeah, I'm a service member. Yeah, I, you know, I was an army aviation officer. And then the weirdest thing started happening People are like, hey, I've seen you before. Like, wait, were you that girl who made that video? It's like, oh, God, no, that's following me, isn't it? Okay, that's where we're at. But then they all said, hey, I know a buddy or I went through. And all of a sudden, I found myself surrounded by people in Team Rubicon who were service members, but who started sharing their stories with me or their friends' stories with me. And I'm like, wow, I'm not being alienated. I'm not being made to feel ashamed or feel weird. It's I'm being welcomed. And so at this point, I was finding the healing within this community with other service members, you know, prior service members. And then I get this opportunity to go into Wildland Fire. Team Rubicon's like, hey, we're we're doing this partnership with the Bureau of Land Management. And um, we want to get you a red card. They're like, I have no idea what that is. Like, oh, this is how you become a wildland firefighter. And um, it's like, well, wildland fire is not anything I ever thought I would do. But you know what? I love being outdoors and I do want to serve my country. You know, I it's what I wanted to do. And so all of a sudden I go to this, you know, four days of training and get this call like, hey, you're getting dispatched on the Ferguson fire in California. I'm like, Okay, I, here we go. My first fire, Ferguson Fire in California, and that's where I met Matt. So, bring this back around full circle. Um, it started off with four years of wildland fire for me. It's just I loved it. You know, one year with the Bureau of Land Management and three years with the U.S. Forest Service. So, that that is my military service up to that stopping point. Brilliant. Well, firstly, I mean. You know, I'm sorry, but also thank you for sharing your story. I want to get back to, to a couple of things. But first thing, that organizational betrayal and or bullying, you know, you think of bullying as kids. And sadly, we see horrendous videos of bullying. In fact, I just saw today there was a 15-year-old girl who was one of those viral bullying videos. She was the victim and she just took her own life. So this is a real thing, no matter you're a child or an adult, but there's uh, a female firefighter who one of uh, the guys I had on the show, who's a, a coach who works with my one of my previous departments. He worked with her department as well, and she's in this video talking about his training and everything. And then I think it was a few months later, she took her own life, and there was an element of organizational bullying in there as well. So this topic is extremely important. I mean, of course, it's not the only piece of the puzzle. There are others. Um, but if the, the number of people I know that are aggressive, fired up, you know, firefighters and, and paramedics that really want to make a difference in the world, 
and they are swimming upstream. They're banging their head against a brick wall in their their uh, department, and it's it's debilitating. And I had that myself. I mean, I've told this story a few times. The last place I worked, one of the guys I got hired with passed away from an overdose. And it was, uh, God, I think it was, I don't know if it was about a year. And so I volunteered for the funeral detail. We took the ladder truck. If you've probably seen the the pictures, we have the two trucks and the, the flag hang in the middle. So we we did that. We helped the other, other departments set their um, aerial up. We waited through the whole funeral till everyone had gone. Then we broke everything down, grabbed something to eat and headed back. And we were about two hours from where I worked. And on the way back, my lieutenant at the time got a phone call saying that he needed to apologize to the four lieutenants, four officers that were there because we took too long at the funeral and they had to run calls. And you talk about organization patrol. We just buried one of our own. It's a four-station department, and they had the audacity to think that their workload was more important than us laying this guy to rest the right way. So that changed it for me. So, I mean, I totally understand that. And then I became, because I lost my shit when I got back to the station and, and was like, please tell me this is wrong. And they start, and they're all back in the station sitting in Lazy Boys, and then they start giving these fucking horrendous pathetic excuses oh it was really hard and so i'm i basically had to leave i'm like i'm gonna break someone's jaw or i'm gonna go home and i'm gonna choose b because i want to keep my job but i was in tears i was angry and then i became the psycho so i know you know it was it was switched on me i was doing the right thing and yet i was vindicated for that too so i totally understand that so that's one area but I want to kind of dissect as well that dark place that you got. Before I do, and I, I do ask a lot of people this on the show, with this lens that you have now, with understanding mental health in our professions, when you look back at your childhood, were there any elements of that that would contribute to mental health challenges later on in your career? No, I, I actually had a, a really good childhood. I had a great relationship, still do, with both of my parents, both very involved in my life. Um, never never had any issues. Um, I was pretty lucky, actually, in that regard, and had a pretty healthy family um, dynamic, you know, the big family Christmases and Thanksgivings. And so, no, it, pretty good childhood. Yeah, because I want to ask that because there are all these different pieces. So that just adds even more to the magnitude of this organizational betrayal, this toxic leadership. When you were at that point, one of the things that nauseates me now, and I subscribed it to, to it myself 10 years ago, is suicide is cowardly. How could they do that? It's, you know, it's the selfish way out. Mm-hmm. And then I hear these stories for the last six and a half years of people that were right there and just like you god god the universe whatever sent something that stopped them at the very last minute and i've had people on that did the action and they just survived which is a beautiful you know an incredible miracle in itself but also they get to kind of testify about where they were mentally and Mm -hmm. through these compounding elements from i mean it could be a number of things sleep deprivation you know uh, childhood trauma, organizational betrayal, et cetera, et cetera, relationship problems, psych meds, alcohol. These people get to the point that it seems to be a, the, the unspoken element of this point. Of course, I want the pain to end. I want the suffering to end. That's That's an obvious thing. But the other one that you don't hear discussed is I feel like a burden 
to my family, to my friends, to my child. And because, as you said, the most valuable thing you give to the military, I gave to the fire services, I will sacrifice my life to someone else. That mindset with that actually selfless mentality, even though it's completely wrong, completely warped, that if you truly, if your brain has tricked you to truly believing that you're a burden, then suicide becomes a selfless act. It doesn't make any sense to a healthy brain, but it becomes, right. becomes a selfless act at that moment. Without loading the question, that's just an observation I've heard from these stories. Do you remember any element of, of that in your particular dark place in the bathroom? So going up to that moment, it was about, I would say, maybe a 10-minute drive from I, I had lived on post. And so I remember driving back from the post headquarters building heading home. And I you know, pulled into the driveway and had to go walk next door and grab my son. But on that drive home, there's a lot that went through my mind. And it was piecing together all of the steps I had taken to get to that point where it's like, did I do something wrong? Could I have done something else? It's like I exhausted every means possible. And it's like, then it's, should I have done something different? Should I not have turned her in? And it's like, I don't regret that. I, I, I don't, and I still don't to this day. And then it's like, okay, well, where do we go from here? And it was in that moment, it's like, I don't know. And then I started going back to why wasn't the CG there? My whole chain of command was there. We were all in our dress uniform. I was told I was going to get 15 minutes. And then it just, I focused and fixated back to, I was not worth 15 minutes of his time. 15 minutes to ask of someone who's really busy right? If you're the CG of an entire installation, you've got a busy schedule. And I'm like, I don't care. A junior officer does not want to willingly put themselves on the carpet in front of a CG's desk. They don't. No one wants to, to put themselves into that vulnerable position. So it's like, how often does this really happen? It's like, I can't imagine it happens very often, you know? And then it's, it, it was going back and focusing on, no, he just, I was just not worth his time. I sacrificed so many mornings. My husband sacrificed time with me, me time with him, time with my son, time with my son with me. All of those were more than 15 minutes. These were years, years, not one deployment. We're talking years a sacrifice for my family. And I was in that moment, I felt completely useless. Like I had nothing to offer because my whole identity and the thing that my husband and I kept talking about, the thing I kept talking about to my friends, to my family is all of this is for a reason. All of this is for a reason. It's all going to be for my army aviation career it's all going to matter. I just, I'm just paying my dues, just paying my dues. And then it was gone. 
And so having that mindset for so many years and then just having it ripped away, it was just this void. And then all of a sudden, before I knew it, I had no identity. There was no goal to work towards. There was no reason for the sacrifice. There was no reason for any of it. And so by the time I had grabbed my son and had gone home, I could not find a single reason to justify any of the things up until that point, because at that point it made no sense. It had no purpose. My choices, my life, me had no purpose. And I know to some people listening, they're probably like, well, but you were still, you know, a wife and a mom. Yeah. But those things, while they were a part of me, those were also sacrifices made for my identity to be an army aviator. And I think that's a really hard thing to wrap, you know, your brain around, right? And it also made me come to the conclusion that I had put my family through all of that for no reason. And that was the burden side of things where it's like, this was all for nothing. And so that was definitely my last mindset before I just couldn't even tell you, <laughs> you know, it, it was all for nothing. Well, again, I mean, thank you for sharing. Each of these stories are so important because people are going to be listening and go, that's how I felt, you know, and it's it's different for every person. And like I said, it's, there's this, this smorgasbord of contributing factors and everyone's kind of equation is going to look different. But that loss of identity is crippling. And we know it is for people that transition out of the military and the first responders. It's known when you, when you leave, but that's usually a volunteering, you know, retirement, whatever it is, transition out. But I think where we miss as well is not only is that a huge group of people that are hurting if they don't have that purpose and that tribe to transition to, and if you've lost that identity, because a lot of people, you know, me being a man, it's so easy to be, to be like, I am a Marine, I am a firefighter. No, no you're James, who that's what you do and you love it and you you know but it's not who you are it's what you do and it's it's a vehicle to carry that purpose of trying to make the world a little better and now i do it through a microphone not very cool but the same exact purpose you know and actually i would argue probably even more of an impact now but you know we forget that that same loss of identity happens when you have a back injury when you know you're fired when you know you do have some sort of mental health crisis and you have to transition out when um you know i mean there's just so many things and even promotion you're in this tight-knit crew say now you've been working with the same co-pilot or group of people um and then all of a sudden you're behind a desk i think that has its own weight as well so you know you have you have that loss of identity, but then you have, it's not just a loss, it's a stolen identity or for something that's completely unjust. So you've got anger, you've got shame, you've got betrayal. I mean, all these, these things are compounding. And then, as you said, that guilt then of, I know I couldn't be there. I, I, my son was with my husband while I was at school studying for this thing. And now I'll never get those years back for him. Yeah. And that's, one thing that has popped into my mind more times than not, where it's like, those were the early developmental years of my son. 
And I missed a lot of things because I told myself it was going to be worth it. I was going to create a better environment for my son. I'm doing this for myself and my family. I mean, anyone who says they're just doing it for their family, you're also doing it for yourself too. Because for me, it's, I wanted to be a role model to my son. Like, hey, look, you can achieve your goals and your dreams. Because remember, I had taken a break from college at that point, you know, and my original goal is, hey, I want to go, I want to be an army pilot. And it's like, I don't ever want my son to be in a position one day where it's like, well, I took a break or, oh, I can't do it. Like, no, like, I want to say like, hey, I did it. You can do it, you know? And um, <laughs> it's it's a different story now. Because that's the one thing about even sharing my story here, even to this day, putting, you know, making that video on YouTube, it's like, this story is always going to come back to this ending. My army aviation career ended just like this. And that's now a part of me. Whether I want it or not, it's there. And it's a different story I'm going to have to have with my son. That original, hey, sacrifice, you know, these, you know, time missed. It was all for something. And now it's like, well... If my son comes to me admittedly and says, I want to join the army, my opinion of it's going to be a lot different. You know, I, I'm not going to lie. I don't want my son to join the army. I, I had a very bitter experience. My husband's, you know, he's serving and, you know, he's had a really great career. He's had great opportunities, but my perspective is, is changed. It's just not the conversation I thought I would have with him. And that, that is hard in itself. When it's like you said as well, to be, you know, to be fair, there are some phenomenal people in these organizations. And if you'd been standing in the front of the right person, this would have been resolved immediately. There are phenomenal leaders in the fire service and there are absolutely horrendous ones. And with that whole safety element, that was the, one of the issues I had with my last place. There were people that I knew damn well can't even put the mask on. They're claustrophobic, can't climb into a, a space in the dark in a fire. And these are people that are getting paid that might have to respond to you and your family when they're trapped in a fire. And I, you know, that was inexcusable to me. So I just not so much made formal complaints. I was just very vocal about training standards and fitness standards and being part of the solution, bringing them to people. But I would get such pushback and such resistance because they knew it was going to expose who actually couldn't do it. And, you know, again, lives are at stake. So it's not about, you know, it's not an ethical thing. It's like, this is, I mean, it's a common sense thing. Why would you have someone in that position that couldn't? Why would you have someone at the helm of a helicopter who could crash, not only kill the people on board, but crash into a village and kill a whole bunch of other people as well? Right. There's there's a standard. And that's one thing I never shied away from. You know, I am a believer that if you are going to put yourself into a position where other people's lives are on your hand or in your hands, rather, you have to give them the best version of yourself. Doesn't matter if you're having a bad day. Doesn't matter what's going on in your personal life. None of that matters in that moment. You have to give them the best version because that's what they deserve. And that's holding standards. You know, when I went to the wildland fire side of the house, I realized like, cause I've always been fit. I've been a CrossFitter 
you know, most of my life. But when I became a wildland firefighter, I was on the ground. I was part of a type, you know, two a, you know, initial attack crew. I'm with like 18 year old guys. Right. And these young fit fellas. And, you know, at this point when I'm starting my, my fire career, I'm in my, you know, late twenties. And it's like, I need to raise my own standards. I need to run, you know, greater distances faster, do a lot more weight training because I need to carry just as much weight as them. They're not going to carry my pack. They're not going to carry my saw if I'm, you know, on the Sawyer team. Like, no, like I have to carry my own weight and not be a burden on them because I put my life at risk where I can't get back home to my family and I put their lives at risk. And that's how I felt. And so I had to meet the standards. And so I don't have a lot of sympathy. And I know that sounds cold, but it's true. I don't have a lot of sympathy for those who don't feel the same way because they're just, they're a danger to themselves and to others, you know? So if you can't put your mask on, you don't want to go in the dark space because you're claustrophobic. It's like, well, then you don't have any business being a firefighter. If I can't carry my pack and I can't keep up, you know, marching out of a a fire, I'm sure as heck not going to be able to run to a safety zone. If the fire, you know, winds shift 180 degrees and increase, like then I'm a burden to everyone else. Like, no, that's, that's just not okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you talked about CrossFit. I got into it when I was in the fire service. It was around 06. Um, So I got to see kind of how I performed on the fire ground prior. And I'd always kept kept myself in good condition, but it was more of the kind of bodybuilding style movements and, you know, running cardio and weights were kind of separate. I had an awesome aha moment with Helen, um, the the workout. And it was just, I wrote about it in my book and it was just, it was hilarious because I was just completely humbled by this. Did you have a kind of first CrossFit story and then talk to me about how that factored into you being able to perform in the wildland space? Yeah. So for me, it was Fran. Oh, God. (laughs) Welcome to CrossFit. Fran Lung. Yes. Fran Lung is a thing. So one thing that I came to find being an army of okay, we're not in the field, boots on the ground, carrying heavy weight. That's just not what pilots do in the army, right? That's just the truth. I always stayed fit. I always did really well on my PT tests. And getting into fire, I realized like, wow, I I got I thought I was really fit before, but no, I'm I'm carrying 70 plus pounds. Fires only happen in the steepest possible cliffs and mountains, I swear. <laughs> like, and I have to be able to keep up. And so Brand was my aha moment because it made me realize that my lung capacity needed some improvements. I was getting winded and that's what killed me that, that going back to that Fran lung. And so I started doing a lot more distance running and a lot more cardio based workouts in addition to CrossFit. And that helped me tremendously on the fire line. You know, I saw on, I hate to say this. I really do. But I saw people on some of my fire crews where they would just have to leave the fire site early because they couldn't keep up. And it's not like we were running with our packs on the way out, you know, uh, leaving for the day. It was we were walking, you know, we were marching out with our gear and they would have to leave an hour early from our end of day so they can make it to the trucks. (laughs) 
And I was like, that's ridiculous, <laughs> you know? It's like, I am not going to be that person. And so for me, you know, CrossFit was my my catalyst. I'm like, I'm no, that's that's not going to be me. And it helped me tremendously. It goes back to that functional fitness. Absolutely. It is definitely functional fitness. Now, what about when that transition piece, the identity, the purpose, and the tribe that you found in the wildland community? Wildland firefighters are funny, right? I go from the army, which is very much more of the type A mindset, to wildland firefighters who a lot of them are type B, and it's hilarious. So it was two very different cultures, but there was also a lot of veterans in there. And they were a lot of veterans like me. Like, hey, I wanted to serve my country. I saw some things, some things happened. It really made me question things, but I still want to wear a uniform and have that sense of purpose. And so they end up in fire. And when I went in, it's, wow, okay, my uniform is yellow and green, right? (laughs) Tops yellow, green bottoms. And I'm carrying a pack and I'm fighting an enemy that wants to kill me and that's fire. So it's going back to, I never had a combat tour. I can't relate my time on the fire to combat because I don't know it. And I won't pretend to know it because I've never been in it, but it's the closest thing that I could ever have to it. That sense of purpose deploying you know, dispatched in this case, getting dispatched onto a fire, fighting a, an enemy, and saving people. That camaraderie, that working together, that embrace the suck mentality, you know. We had nights where it was really cold working the night shift, um, high winds, you know, hiking up steep hills and and cutting line all day and being exhausted and going back and maybe getting, you know, five hours if you're lucky of rest and then doing it all over again. It gave me that that thing that I felt like I had been robbed of, right? I was supporting guys on the ground, being on the ground in a different way, wearing a different uniform, fighting a different enemy. But it gave me that sense of purpose that I had longed for. And those guys and gals that I worked with on the fire line were some of the best I have ever ever been with and I built a lot of really great relationships with them that admittedly I I wish I would have been able to have in the army. And don't get me wrong, I've got some great memories and some great experiences in the army and I have friendships that still endure strong to this day from the army, but I got a community in the wildland fire side of the house that I thought I was going to have in the army, if that makes sense. Well, it does, absolutely. Well, what I'm thinking of is, so you came from being a you know a helicopter pilot, you go into wildland, but you're on the floor. Did you have any opportunity or any thoughts about actually going into wildland aviation? Yeah, so I was actually um, a helicopter crew member or a HECM uh, trainee for a bit, and I got to help bring in you know helicopters to drop Bambi buckets and stuff on the fire. So that was kind of cool, but... Because I never got to deploy as a commissioned officer, um, hours in the Army 
mostly go towards like warrant officers. They get to fly a lot because that's their their primary function. And then so for commissioned officers, unless you are in a key development, so KD time, so like company commander, platoon leader, so on, or deployed, you don't get a lot of hours. So I was a low hour aviator coming out. And so unfortunately to fly in the fire side of the house, um, you had to be a higher hour. So I couldn't go in and just fly for them, though I wanted to. Um, so that's what I'm I'm actually doing now. I'm building hours, and I actually just started transition flight training to fixed-wing aircraft um, just over a year ago. So building hours. So that is a goal eventually. I'm just not at the hour requirement yet, though. So while you're on the ground, you spend four years. Talk to me if there were any like real career moments in that, and then let's talk about the transition out of the wildland space. Yeah, so one thing that I started to find within the wildland fire side of the house is there was a lot of lateral and upward movement. So there's so many things that you could do. You could either stay on a ground crew, um, become a type 2A crew, so that initial attack crew like I was. You could go into being a hotshot, smoke jumper, you know, so many different routes right? You could become a squatty, you could be a, go on to a fire truck. It was kind of like a pick your own adventure. That's what I like. So I, I jumped around a bit. I never stayed with the same crew every season. I would go out with a different crew and have different experiences. And I made a really good name for myself. They wanted me to stay with the forest service and go up through leadership. Um, that just didn't interest me though. And the reason being is that I wanted to go back to aviation. And I knew if I jumped into a leadership position that that was going to set me down the track to kind of, you know, bring me off course. I'm like, you know what? No, I want to be on the ground. I want to be with the guys. I want to be out there with the guys and gals on the ground putting in the hard work, learning the side of things, because eventually I would love to go back and fly. And I think it's invaluable experience. Be like, hey, if I'm going to support these guys on the ground, I'm going to know what their mission is, you know? So when they call me in, I'm going to know what they need because I, being an aviator is probably one of the most frustrating things being on the ground because I had several close experiences where people would drop in the wrong area. I had a squatty that was almost killed when a, you know, CH-47, you know, so Chinook comes in with a Bambi bucket and we were bringing her into a certain target and she dropped in the wrong area. She literally dropped water on one of my squatties and one of his saving factors, but could have also been a factor that killed him is it was through the trees. So that heavy column of water got broken up through the trees. Thankfully, no Widowmakers, you know, fell down. But that was a close call. And it's like, what are you doing? Like, why, why did you do that? You know, or I had a super tanker uh, dump flame retardant all over me. <laughs> not once, but twice because they were dropping in the black. Which is so, nasty stuff as well, chemically. It's terrible stuff. Um, but yeah, no. So I <laughs> got to see that side of things. It made me realize this is, I'm going to be better <laughs> than, than this experience. Oh, that reminds me of, um, there's a couple of guys who've been on here. I think it's a Marine Special Operations position, but I think if I got the term right, forward aircraft controller. So they mm -hmm. are usually pilots. Um, sometimes they're not, but 
I had one, Dave Burke, who was a Top Gun instructor, and he was that. So that knowledge of being in the air, and then you put those pilots on the ground, they know exactly, you know, the coordinates, what, you know, what type of aircraft they need, what needs to be dropped. Um, so yeah. it's interesting because that's kind of what you ended up doing in the wildland space. Yeah, and the pilots enjoyed it. So when I would bring them in to Atari, I would give them, you know, coordinates. I would bring them cardinal directions like, hey, turn heading 180, fly, you know, and they're like, oh, thank you. Because they're just used to dealing with wildland firefighters who just be like, hey, I'm going to wave this flag around to this target in this general location. And it's like, no, you don't understand. Like through their level, they can't see (laughs) when you're in like the thick wood line, you know. And so they appreciated that. And it was it was it was a lot of fun. It also made me realize from the ground guys perspective, some of the things the aviators would do up there that were just nonsensical, you know, it wouldn't work for them. So it's like, okay, I'm I'm taking bits and pieces from both sides of things, but like, okay, this, this is how it should be done, you know, coming in. It's truly invaluable experience. So you mentioned about getting hours now. So talk to me about Heligunner and how you kind of transitioned into that. Yeah. So Originally, when I had gotten out, I, like I said, I was with Team Rubicon for a bit and got into Wildland Fire that way. And I was like, you know what? I really miss search and rescue. Like, I wonder if Texas has search and rescue. So I ended up finding Texar, so Texas Search and Rescue. So I jump in there and I'm like, okay, this is going to be great. This is going to be something I can do during the off season, you know, because fire season is for the six months out of the year, depending. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be great. And I was going down to one of their training events and I get this random call out of the blue from this guy named Jeremy. He's like, Hey, he's like, I see on record. You have a truck. He's like, does that happen to have a trailer hitch by chance? I'm like, uh, yeah. It's like, okay. He's like, well, do you mind coming to my shop? And he gives me the address. He's like, and pick up, a trailer with this Polaris Ranger on it and bring it down to your training. And like, um, okay. It's like, it's really random. And so all I knew is that this guy worked for Texar and he was part of logistics. I'm like, okay, well, you know what? I want to make a good name for myself. So yeah, I'm going to go pick up this random trailer and, and bring it down there. And I go in there. And so I get to talking with him and he's like, wait, you're, you're a helicopter pilot. I'm like, yeah, I was once upon a time. Remember, this is still pretty fresh. So I was like, I don't really want to like talk much about it. He's like, I own a company called Heligunner. He's like, would you ever be interested in coming out? We do like aerial gunnery operations and, you know, hog hunting. And I'm like, sure. He's like, okay, well, I'll keep you in mind. So all of a sudden I get called out for aerial gunnery. You got to remember like patchy side of things. Like that means something completely different to me. And I go out there and I see this md 530 fox so like the civilian version of a little bird helicopter sitting in a field and i'm like okay and there's civilians out there with you know ars and they're no kidding being trained on aerial gunnery from a helicopter I'm like oh this is kind of cool and so that's how it started i got out there just helping out as a flight safety officer and i did this in the fire off season and so Last year, I decided to leave Wildland Fire um, to be able to flight train full-time, essentially, for fixed wing, but also work as the director of operations for Heligunner. 
and it's it's been fantastic. It's I attribute Hello Gunner to making my love for helicopters come back again. I could actually be excited to be around helicopters. I fly them sometimes, you know, for them and but mostly I'm on the operations side of the house and it's it's been a really great experience for me to kind of play around in that world I was once in, but have a positive association with it. Um, if that makes sense. No, it does completely. And when you were talking about, you know, everything you wanted was to, to be that aviator within the military, will you remove the, you know, the, I don't know the word I'm looking for diorama that the helicopter's in and you change it, you're still yeah. doing the same thing. So, all of that time that you spent away from your husband, away from your child, ultimately is still giving you the skill set to do what you do now. And then if you choose to, you know, progress into Wildland or whatever that that does next, you are a helicopter pilot. So despite all the, as you said, twists and turns and zigzags that left scars, you know, it's amazing how it kind of parallels the story. Um, God, Steve Jobs was at college, I think community college, and rather than following a track, he just chose random classes, and one of them was calligraphy, which ended up being the very first font on a computer. Years, years later, he had no idea it was going to be anything to do with that when he was doing it. So it's interesting, some of these doors that slam shut early in life, and then they circle around, and you're like, oh, okay, this is this is why I was supposed to be here. I didn't like it at the time when they told me all those things, but I have this skill set now and these stories too to help people, but also I can still pursue my career. It's so funny how life can create opportunities that when your mind is closed and you're, you've got those blinders on, like, no, I'm going to be this career path. I'm going to be like, at one point, I was just going to be an army aviator. That was my focus. I never would have thought these other opportunities would ever be presented to me because I just wasn't open to them. I was on that track. And it's so funny because it comes back around full circle. And I kid you not, last month we got hired. So we're we're going down to, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Gundy Awards. Um, rings a bell. I don't know why though. So it's it's a special award ceremony for people within the firearms community who are like influencers and it's it's down in in Texas and so it's like okay we're going to go air, have aerial gunnery and have some of our instructors uh run a shoot house with airsoft rounds and all of a sudden before I know it, it's like hey can you work with tanks and I'm like okay this <laughs> Yes, I can actually. I can deconflict airspace with aerial gunnery and tanks. Like, what a random thing! I never would have thought I'd be doing in the civilian world. Um, but even that, it, it comes back around full circle, and it's 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 fun now that enough time has passed since I've been out of the military to have some of these random things come up and it's like what are the odds you know yeah exactly and the thing is that you know the world is your oyster now you realize now you've had the chance for the dust to settle and process a lot of those emotions now you kind of have this skill set in your hands and you've done all these amazing things like it can go anywhere like you said i mean who knows what you're going to be flying 10 years from now right and honestly i think that's one of the things that I want to drive home the most. Like the girl who was in the army, the girl who made that initial video, just trying to share her story um, is not the same one who's here today. I 
did not realize all of the opportunities that there were in the civilian side of the house. I did not know about how much I was going to enjoy things that just weren't the army. And it's, it's so hard because there's, there's too many people that I have met along the way who never, they just closed down. So they had something bad happen to them in the army and then they just shut themselves off from the world. And that's, that's one thing I really want to emphasize here. It's like, no, you, you got to still push forward as hard as it is and put yourself out there because these opportunities you never would have known existed. They can't present themselves otherwise. And like your podcast, you probably didn't think like, Hey, I'm going to be running a podcast one day, you know, talking with people and having them share their experiences with me and that here you are. Yeah. was couldn't have been further from my mind about eight years ago. So yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It really is. I'm, I'm excited to be here. And I think, I think the work that you're doing is, is pretty great. So, you know, it's, it's also nice to be able to share my story where I'm in a better place. The last time I have shared my story, like I said, was, was that video. And I was not in a good headspace. I was very angry, um, sad, very sad, and just going through a whole, you know, flurry of emotions. And so to be able to have a conversation like this honestly helps me too, because it's, it's showing the, this is the after there is so much more than just being in that place in that moment. Absolutely. Well, I'm so glad that you shared it. I'm so glad that you've had this this journey. And I think it illustrates as well something that I I realized within myself. And then, you know, something I talk about a lot now with the transition piece is when you were indoctrinated into a profession that you adore, especially some of these men and women, I mean, they went from high school straight into the military. The fire service is the world I know. And when these men and women leave, they're like, well, I guess I could go teach at a fire academy. And this is the problem is that we don't realize what an incredible skill. I mean, you became a helicopter pilot for crying out loud. You know, that's <laughs> that's an amazing skill to take out. But these men and women, you know, we call three numbers on a phone when we're having our worst day and two or four show up on a vehicle and we mitigate that. And it could be a thousand different things that have gone wrong that day. So the leadership, the problem solving, I mean, all these different areas, you can apply that to something else. And I would argue that most people that were really passionate about being in uniform, real estate is probably not going to fit the bill. You know, it's probably going to be something else where you're serving, but that can be in a thousand different ways, in a thousand different uniforms or costumes or, you know, whatever. But I think we devalue what we're actually capable of because in our little infrastructure, well, I didn't make battalion chief or I didn't do this or I wasn't special operations. It doesn't matter. You did this job for X amount of years. You worked with all these different people. You went to different countries, whatever it was. That is something that you know, 90 whatever percent of the population will never even know or understand. So you're an incredibly valuable resource. You just have to look in the mirror and tell yourself that. Yeah. And part of that is is putting yourself out there. And I think too often we'll surround ourselves and it, this is a double-edged sword. We surround ourselves with those like-minded communities, that that sense of camaraderie, right? Other service members or other firefighters, but when we surround ourselves with people with the same experiences, it's great to be able to discuss and process and find people who share that common ground. But at the same time, 
it also kind of closes you off from, wait a second, most of the population is not like this, you know? So you don't feel like necessarily like you're special or unique, you know, because you're surrounded by the same type of people that it's hard to, to look out there and be like, yeah, no, most people will have never served, whether it's in a military uniform or if, you know, firefighter uniform, most won't know that, but we don't necessarily know that because we <laughs> tend to surround ourselves with the same communities. So it's, it's interesting. Absolutely. Well, I want to say thank you so much. Before I kind of close out, for people listening, if they want to learn more about you, I tried to open the, the interview you did with the BBC. Sadly, we're in the wrong country. So if people in the UK, they can, they can look at that video as well. But where are the best places to learn about you or reach out to you on online or social media? So right now on social media, my Twitter and my Instagram would be the best places to reach out to me. My Facebook, I keep pretty locked down because that's like my my personal with my friends and family. But my Instagram and my Twitter, which is uh, Lindsay Whitney, L-I-N-Z, and then W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, um, that I have open to the public. And I'll share a lot of my experiences or stories. And that's mostly where I get communications from people who had, you know, seen the video to find me and and talk with me. And I love connecting with people who are going through or who have gone through um, experiences in the military, whether they're similar to mine or, or different. I always will listen. I have heard so many different stories and I definitely, I do not judge. I have heard some crazy stories and having gone through one myself, it's like, I, I get it. So I'm always there to listen. Well, again, I want to say thank you. Um, the number of people that have really bared their soul on this show and it, it, it's so, um, it fills me full of gratitude that there is that amount of trust for people to to tell their story. But and I understand that it kind of it will open the wound slightly. But the value of hearing these stories, in this case, your story, especially that very vulnerable place, you know, in the closet we talked about, is so so powerful. And I know it's going to resonate deeply with people listening. So I want to thank you for your courage and vulnerability, and thank you for being so generous with your time today. Thank you for having me on and giving me the opportunity to share my story. 